Hey Hope family, welcome back to another Hope Daily and another look at the book of Genesis. Today we are mainly going to be in Genesis 6, which is the start of the account of Noah and the flood. I want to look at the reason behind the flood, why God decided that this was the route he was going to go, and then what we can learn from this. So let's read Genesis 6 verses 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God continues from there, giving instructions on building the ark and who is going to enter the ark, both his family and the animals that he is to take with him. But I want to focus in on that word violence, that God's reasoning is that the earth was corrupt and full of violence. I think we the same thing probably comes to mind for all of us when we think of violence. We think of physical violence, that there is uh, death or at least like beatings, um, that people are violent towards one another. And certainly that is a possibility perhaps even a likely part of the problem. We can go back to Genesis 4 and see uh, when Cain killed Abel that violence in the traditional sense became a very real part of the world. And then later as we read through the sons of Adam and Eve and we go through Cain's offspring, we get to a man named Lamech who had multiple wives and he says to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So here is someone who is violent and proud of that violence. That traditional view of violence, I'm sure, was a part of the world and was part of the corruption that God saw. But I recently saw someone break down the Hebrew here and point out some other things that I found both interesting and instructive. And so this is thanks to the work of Ari Lam. Uh, at A-R-I-L-A-M-M on Twitter, if you want to follow him there. He puts out these why you should read the Bible in its original languages, which is something I don't do because I don't know them, but he does it and helps us through it. He also hosts a podcast called The Good Faith Effort, but he looks at the Hebrew word for violence used here, and it's kamas, C-H-A-M-A-S, kamas. And this word appears 60 times in the Old Testament and is often but not always translated as violence. Now, there are three other occurrences outside of this use here where the word kamas appears with the verb meaning to fill, like we saw in Genesis 6 where God said it is full of violence. And so let's take a look at those instances. In Micah 6, 11 to 12, we read this. Shall I acquit someone with a dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. So your rich people are full of kamas. They are violent is how that is translated. But what are we talking about? Shall I quit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? We're talking about dishonest gain, ill-gotten gain, deceiving people out of their money to make yourself rich. 
The next place that we see our word kamas is Ezekiel 7, verse 23, where it says, Prepare change, for the land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of violence, or full of kamas. So there we see it paired with bloodshed. So certainly there is some level of actual traditional violence as we would normally think of it. But if we go back to just a few verses earlier in this prophecy, in verse 11, we see our word kamas again. Kamas has arisen, a rod to punish the wicked. None of the people will be left, none of that crowd, none of their wealth, nothing of value. So what is God suggesting has arisen and he's going to take away? It is translated violence again, but none of their wealth, nothing of value. That again, we talk, we're talking about dishonest gain. And then the last place that we will look at today is, is the book of Amos. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Now the Hebrew here says, those who store up kamas and robbery in their strongholds, but it's translated who store up in their fortresses. So we're talking about storing up ill-gotten gains that you take from what you have plundered and looted and you store it up, that this is kamas. And so this is what we see happening in the world around the time of the flood, that this kamas, this type of violence, certainly we saw in the Ezekiel passage that it is tied to a physical violence, but it's not just physical violence, that there is a taking advantage of others, stealing what is not yours, and really a an overall dehumanizing effect, seeing each other as less than and being willing to take from them. Our Lamb shares that rabbis would tell this story about what it was like in the time just before the flood. You would go to the market with a bucket of produce to sell, but as people would pass by, they would slowly steal less than a penny's worth. And by law, this was too little to be prosecuted for. But after enough people have done it, you're left with nothing and you've made no money. There is a theft that is happening, but there's also a disregard for you, for your goods, and for your ability to make a living. And this is the meaning of violence as used in Genesis 6. The inhabitants of the world had begun to treat one another with contempt. They no longer saw one another as made in the image of God, of worthy for respect or decency. And I think of Jesus when he enters Jerusalem for the final time. He enters the temple and he sees the money changers. And he isn't mad that they are selling something in the temple per se. Theoretically, this was actually a good thing to do, to to give travelers an opportunity to purchase sacrifices that they wouldn't have been able to travel with. But the way that they were doing it was taking advantage of others. Like the thieves in the rabbinic story at the time of the flood, they had no regard for their fellow man. They were doing something that couldn't be prosecuted because it wasn't illegal by the letter of the law, but Jesus still flips their tables and drives them out because they had turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves. They have looked upon their brother and they have said that they are not worthy of respect or decency, but they are just pawns to be used for our own advantage. He saw their kamas, their violence, and this is what all of the earth had become in Genesis 6 a den of thieves, a den of robbers. So what does this mean for us? I think it means that we must beware that the violence that caused God to flood the earth does not take root in our hearts. In our present time, we can look at the atrocities of war in Russia and Ukraine. We can look at the numerous acts of gun violence that happen in America on a daily basis and think, well, I would never do that. I would never become that 
type of violence. I hope we never do step into that kind of violence, but that is a very particular kind of violence that really few people are capable of. But even that type of violence starts with a lesser form of violence, or at least what we view as a lesser form of violence, but we are all prone to. Dehumanizing violence, seeing others with contempt as not worthy of respect or decency, not seeing them as made in the image of God. So we do this by looking at our political opponents or the religious other as less than us. That's where it begins. We begin to see them as only evil, that there's no redemption or possible redeeming qualities in the things that they believe or the things that they do. And that opens up the door for what we do to them not mattering because they're not really human anyway. What we do to them, what we say about them doesn't matter because we do not see them as fellow image bearers. And we can do this to our family members, our co-workers. We can do this to corporations, to governments. But let us not create room to treat one another this way. Let us fight to see the humanity in one another. I believe one of the reasons that Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies is so that we do not enact physical violence, but also so that the kamas does not callous our hearts to their humanity. When we pray for our enemies, we should practice praying the things we would pray for ourselves. And when we do that, we will see their humanity and we empower ourselves to live with enemy love. We enable ourselves to live out Paul's instructions to the Romans at the end of chapter 12, where he says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not pay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.